Coming up on today's show, I'll be reviewing the awesome inaugural episode of Star Trek Picard. And on the back half of the show, I will be interviewing filmmaker Nathan Pfaff about his really cool and inspiring documentary, Film School Africa. So all of that and more coming up on this week's episode of the Derek Diamond Experience podcast, which starts right now. So I had so much fun doing the live show last week that I decided, why not do it again this week? I know I mentioned that I would only be doing live shows monthly, but I was thinking about it, and I'll get more into it in just a second, but I think doing more consistent live shows will be more beneficial long-term. So that being said, welcome into the Derek Diamond Experience podcast. I am your host, Derek Diamond. As I mentioned at the top of the show, I'll be interviewing filmmaker Nathan Pfaff about his really cool documentary, Film School Africa. But before we do that, for the special live segment, I wanted to talk about the challenges of podcasting and what keeps me doing it. So for those who may not know, I originally started this podcast back in 2014. It's crazy to think we're actually coming up on the six-year anniversary of it. I did it as a way to challenge myself. Growing up, especially through high school and through early college, I dealt with almost crippling social anxiety. I remember outside of my inner circle of friends just being really, really afraid to talk to anyone. And I specifically remember in college, I was taking a public speaking class because it was a requirement. And we had to do an impromptu icebreaker speech. Well, that just put this paralyzing fear in me. And I remember almost breaking down and crying during the whole, the whole speech because I didn't know what to say. I had everyone, and it wasn't, a very, it wasn't a very big class. It was only, you know, I'd say 15 people, maybe 20. So that, that was a big wake-up call for me. And then years later... When I started doing the Nerd Cave podcast, that was just essentially me talking with friends. But I, I knew that I wanted to do something a little bit different, and that was kind of the inspiration of, of starting this show. I, I've always been fascinated by hearing other people's stories, you know, where they came from, why they chose the career path they did. That's almost more fascinating to me than the person's career itself. So that, and I was thinking, and Adam Nori is uh, joining us on the live stream. How you doing, Nori? I, so I started the podcast as a way to, one, meet new people. And secondly, it would force me to get out of my comfort zone. It would force me to meet new people and chat with new people. And I would say it's definitely helped out quite a bit. And, and as the show's gone along and evolved throughout the years, you know, it started as a variety show. I incorporated a little bit more of the live streaming into it, mostly because I needed content. But I needed a new challenge. And that was when I made the decision to change the format to Strictly Filmmaking. And it was also to help out my aspiring career. But... About a month ago, I started feeling that little bit of complacency with the show again. And 
almost out of a necessity, I thought, you know, well, why don't I try doing the live show thing again? And doing the, the top 10 movies was a really good way to reintroduce it. And I had a lot of fun doing it. I had quite a few people join in the conversation. We had a lot of fun. You know, I had fun playing the sound bites, listing all my movies, and hearing everybody else's thoughts and movies they enjoyed throughout the year. And I really love the engagement of doing live shows. So I, I think, you know, I'm going to do it a little bit more than monthly. Obviously, I'm not going to do it every single week because it's just a physical and logistic impossibility to do. There are going to be weeks that I just simply do not have the time to do a live show. But I am going to do them when I can because I like the challenge of not just doing a live show, but doing it by myself. You know, I doing the Q&A is a lot different because you do still have that interaction with people. But doing a review like I'm going to do tonight really, you know, it, it presents a new challenge for me. And I, I think it's going to be something that I do on a more consistent basis. I can't tell you that there's going to be a weekly live show. Excuse me, I can't tell you that I'm going to do it monthly or that there's even going to be a consistent schedule with it. You know, I, I just don't have that information. Just my schedule gets so wacky sometimes, but when I can, I'm going to do a live show, whether it's doing a review or I'm toying around with the idea. Cause I, I want to do an Oscars preview show and I'm toying around with the idea of doing that live. I don't know how I'm going to shoot it. I don't know what setup I'm going to use. Obviously, I'm going to have the same backdrop with the brick and everything. But I'll figure something out. And that's likely going to be the review portion of next week's show. And also coming up, I want to try and feature as much content for Pensacon as I can. So Pensacon's at the end of February leading into March. So starting in February, I'm going to have either someone from Pensacon on to do the review segment with me, or I'm going to have an interview with a Pensacon guest, whether it's a celebrity, maybe someone who worked in special effects, maybe some of the filmmakers who will be featured in the film festival. We'll, we'll have to see what happens. You know, the, the show is very much kind of going with the flow these days. You know, I, I do like to plan the show out at least a week in advance so I know what to tell the listeners, what they can expect for, you know, the upcoming week and so on and so forth. If I can do it even farther in advance, great. But I, I will say one thing that's going to come up in mid-February is I'm going to do a roundtable on the Power Rangers series. It was one of my favorite series growing up. And I actually am going to attach an interview to that that I did with Catherine Sutherland, who was the second Pink Power Ranger. And she's also going to be appearing at Pensacon. And, you know, I'll have a lot of uh, content from Pensacon that will feature on the show in March. So it's funny saying the show's kind of going with the flow, yet I do actually have things planned in advance. So anyway, that that's kind of what's down the pipeline for the podcast, but... I've kind of rambled long enough, so I, I think we'll get into our review for this evening, and that is the long-anticipated inaugural episode of Star Trek Picard, which is available on CBS All Access. And to preface that, everybody knows me as a big Star Wars fan, but I've never been a giant Star Trek fan. I don't hate Star Trek. 
by any stretch, but I just can never quite get into it for the most part like Star Wars. You know, I love the episodic format that Star Trek has had since the 60s. Funny enough, I've actually never watched a single episode of the original series, and some of my my friends might, you know, retract my nerd card for that, but it's just something that I never watched. But growing up, I stayed with my grandparents a lot during the summer when my mom would be at work, or I should say both my parents would be at work, and I watched a lot of TV, and one of the shows that I remember watching vividly was Star Trek The Next Generation. And that was when I was introduced to the great Patrick Stewart, who is one of the best actors on the planet right now. And since then, you know, he went to star in X-Men, among many other wonderful projects. He's just, he's one of those actors that you're drawn to him when he's on screen because his performance just sucks you in through the theater screen or your television, wherever you're watching him. He just draws you in. He has that kind of magnetic charm that you want to to be around at all times. So him along with Data the Android and other cool characters, I, I was just drawn right in. And then I remember as I got older and started doing, you know, other things outside of hanging out at my grandparents' house, I kind of fell off of Star Trek. I, I still stuck with Star Wars, but and Luke Thompson has joined. Thank you for watching, Luke. Um, so I was reintroduced to the Next Generation through the DVD sets because my grandma bought all seven seasons on DVD. So I would borrow them, and I started watching them again and falling in love with it. And I, I that love never really carried through to the other Star Trek series. I did watch the movies. I've seen all the movies with the original cast, with all of the Next Generation crew. You know, it, it was... It's a great franchise. Granted, I'm not a huge fan of it, as I've said, like other people are. There are some that Star Trek, that's that's their baby, much like Star Wars is for me and for you know other, other people that I know, but... Uh, I, I do very much respect the franchise for its longevity. And when they announced that Picard was being made, that was what drew me back in because of that character. Because there seems to be this new trend of bringing back characters from the 80s and 90s and bringing them into, you know, almost a next generation, no pun intended, of a viewer. And I was curious as to what they were going to do with it, because I felt like Patrick Stewart would be one that he wouldn't... uh, Luke, what's the difference between Star Wars and Star Trek? Um, Star Wars is better. I'm I'm kidding, of course. In my opinion, it's better, but... um, Star Wars, essentially, both take place in space, but they have different characters. Um, Star Wars is more known for the movies. Star Trek more known for the TV series. Well, st- well, Star Trek essentially is about Starfleet, which is like a 23rd, 24th century military, and it's about the Enterprise, uh, which is a ship that goes out to seek new life and new civilizations, as said in the uh, intro theme song. And then Star Wars is about the Jedi, the Sith... You know, completely different, completely different uh, takes on the whole space saga. But kind of going back to Picard a bit, I, I I knew that Patrick Stewart 
knew what he was doing in the sense that he wasn't just going to come back all these years later to play an old character because he was bored. He, I knew he would be a smart enough actor who would want to come back if it was good. And what I liked about this first episode, and yes, there will be spoilers, so, you know, if you haven't watched the first episode, I don't know why you haven't if you're a Star Trek fan, go... Uh, John Jekyll's joining, fan of Nerd Cave Retro. What's going on, John? Thank you so much for tuning in. So, uh, what was I saying? Oh, um, so anyway, if you haven't watched Star Trek Picard and you're a Star Trek fan, you're doing yourself a disservice. So consider this your spoiler warning. Here we go. So the way the episode began was perfect to me. You see the old Enterprise D from the Next Generation TV show, which features Picard and Data playing poker. As Data played poker, you know, not regularly, but enough to know that it was a thing during the show. And it was always a big deal that in the very last episode, Captain Picard finally joined in on the poker game because he would come in and watch, but he would never actually sit down and participate. So seeing those two together and if you've seen the movies and you know that Data died at the end of Star Trek Nemesis, you knew that something wasn't right. It had to either be a flashback or a dream sequence. And I love the dynamic between those two. You know, Picard and Data were the TNG version of Kirk and Spock. So they're playing poker. And there was this funny moment where Data's pupil... Uh, enlarges and Picard mentions you know you you have a tell and Data's like what do you mean I have a tell that's impossible you know I'm an android and he said no your pupil essentially dilates but you're doing it to make me think that you have a tell so when you're not doing it that's when I know you're bluffing so they continue the game I, I just thought it was a really funny dyna dynamic and it, it showed the chemistry they had from the old TNG show. And then you notice things start to get a little weird. You know, Picard goes all in on his bet, Data lays his cards down, and there's five queens. If you've played cards, you know that's an impossible hand. And you see Mars out the window of the Enterprise, and then it's destroyed, there's this huge flash, Data's gone, and then Picard wakes up in his bed. And he's living at his brother's old vineyard, Chateau Picard, with his dog, who's funny enough named Number One, which he used to call his first officer, Commander Riker, on the Enterprise. So already we've seen some cool little nods to TNG, which I, I love. You know, I, I think fan service, if done correctly, is is fantastic. So we're seeing essentially what Picard's been doing as we. Um, John Jekyll, you guys usually record Nerd Cave Retro on Wednesday nights. Now, yeah, we, so Jason's not able to record on Tuesdays anymore. So we move the show to Wednesday nights at 730. And there's your plug for Nerd Cave Retro, which stars myself and Jason Robbins. You can check that out on Twitch at twitch.tv slash jfunktastic every Wednesday night at 730 p.m. Central Standard Time. So we're seeing what Picard has been up to since we last saw him. We see that he's taken over his brother's vineyard, and things seem to be going well. But he mentions to his housekeeper that 
the dreams he's been having are what he loves, and it's the waking up that he's resenting. So you can tell he's clearly not very pleased with his current life. And we find out that he's no longer with Starfleet. He resigned. And we find out from an interview that he does essentially with like a, you know, almost like an evening news piece or a Barbara Walters interview. He's interviewed by this reporter that supposedly is about the supernova. And if you've watched the 2009 Star Trek film, you know about the supernova that created the Kelvin timeline. And that's where we got the villain from Star Trek 2009, Nero, who was a Romulan. So essentially what happened was the Romulan sun went supernova and destroyed the planet of Romulus. Well, they're enemies with Starfleet, but Picard looks at Romulan lives as just simply lives. So he's responsible for moving the Romulans from the planet to Mars. Well, what happens when they move them to Mars this group of synthetics or androids, they're called synthetics now in Picard, go rogue and kill thousands of people and just wreck a lot of stuff on Mars. So after that, all synthetics are banned and Picard is not very pleased with Starfleet because we find out that Starfleet withdrew from trying to save people from what happened and... As we all know, Captain McCard is a great humanitarian. Donna Kirby's joined. How you doing, Donna? Thank you for watching. So, due to that, he resigns from Starfleet. Now, to backtrack a little bit, he had agreed to do this interview, but not talk about why he left Starfleet. So, of course, the reporter pushes him to talk about it. So, he gets upset, storms off. And then we meet the character of Dodge, who is this young female character who we find out is accepted into the Daystrom Institute, which is this, you know, huge cybernetic dealing with um, androids, synthetic life, everything that's located in Japan. Well, what happens is these assassins show up, kill her boyfriend, try to kill her, but it's almost like this wake up call happens and she attacks them and kills them. And this whole thing was just really, really cool. You know, I thought the fight scene, though, it was really quick, was really well choreographed. And and I, I will say the look of this show has been great. It's very bright, colorful, and just the way it's shot with the camera movements and everything is just, it, it, it's, it's incredible. You know, it, it's crazy to think that Television, you could always tell back in the day that television had a little bit less quality than film. But now that's not the case. You know, you watch a good weekly TV show and it looks better than some of the movies you see in theaters. It's it's crazy. But I think my favorite part of this entire show was when Picard went to the Starfleet Archive because he... He had met Dodge because Dodge escaped the assassins and went to Picard for help because she was seeing him in visions. And she also saw him, the interview of him being broadcast. So she goes to his home seeking guidance. And she he knows that she looks familiar. So she he goes into the Starfleet archive and finds this painting that Data had painted you know, obviously years before he died. 
and the girl in the painting looks exactly like Dodge, and the portrait, the painting is titled Daughter. So then we find out that Dodge is actually a fully synthetic human being created from flesh and blood using one of um, Data's positronic neurons. So essentially, she is Data's daughter, which completely floored me because we're, we're seeing that even in death, Data is still having a really big influence on Star Trek and specifically in Jean-Luc Picard's life. And, and it was cool in Picard's room of the Starfleet Archive because you see a lot of cool little um, pieces of memorabilia from Next Generation. You see... Um, a replica of the Enterprise E, you see the Klingon Batleth, uh, which is their kind of version of a sword. It doesn't look like a sword, but it's used in the same way. But the one thing that stood out to me was this banner that the kids on the Enterprise D had made for Picard. And I can't tell you what episode it was from, but it said Captain Picard Day. And that just kind of took me back to just fond memories because I remember that banner from watching an episode when I was younger and that one really stood out to me so like I said earlier it just has it had enough of the the fan service where it didn't feel like it was too on the nose and this is when he finds the painting that Data made for him and the title daughter and the fact that it looks like Dodge so that's when he has the revelation that surely she had to have been created from Data which we'll get into later, is quite literally the case. She was made from one of Data's positronic neurons. So in theory, part of Data's essence lives in her. Well, as this stuff is being explained, another group of assassins show up, and they successfully kill Dodge. So Picard you know, after he recovers, goes to the Daystrom Institute and finds out that B4, who is a prototype of Data, who's not as advanced, and Star Trek Nemesis is when they discovered him, Data uploaded a backup of his memories and his programming into B4. Well, B4 couldn't handle it, and all of it was pretty much lost. So they're really, you know, they're really hitting home the fact that Data is gone. It, which I, I had read that that was one of the conditions that Brent Spiner had of returning to play Data is that they not undo what happened in Nemesis. So this is when Picard finds out about the whole positronic neuron thing. And through that, he finds out that they were created, or Dodge was created with a twin sister whose name is, if I got this right, Dr. Soji, Soji Asher who is working with with the Romulans. So then we cut to the end when we find out that the Romulans have in fact taken over a battle-damaged Borg cube. And when the camera zoomed out and showed the wide shot of the cube, I said, holy crap. And then, of course, that's where the episode ended. So it was really a uh, John Jekyll. Sadly, I've only watched a little bit of the next generation. You, you should, it's a really good show. And it really, it really hits home the fact of having a good ensemble cast with great chemistry, because there are episodes that focus more on 
you know, Picard. There's more that focus on Data, Geordi, Riker, Troy, Dr. Crusher. You know, they, they all work together extremely well. You can tell it's a little bit dated in a bit, a bit, but I I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. But it, it's it's a really good show. And like I said earlier, I'm not a huge Star Trek fan. You know, I tried watching Deep Space Mine, Deep Space Nine, not mine. Um, I haven't tried watching Voyager, but I, like I said, I've I don't have that much experience with Star Trek. But I, I love the Next Generation. And I specifically love the Picard character, and that was why I was stoked when this was announced. And really going into it, I didn't know that much about it. I knew that from the previews that Data was going to somehow make an appearance. And I, I assumed that it was going to be either a holodeck program or it was going to be in Picard's mind, whether it be a dream or maybe he's starting to lose it a little bit and he's starting to see Data. There is a scene that takes place in the vineyard with Picard and Data when Data's doing the original painting when they're actually wearing their uniforms from the TNG show. That, that was a, a nice little throwback. But overall, I really loved this first episode. Patrick Stewart really drives it as he should because he's the title character. But his, his charm has not skipped a beat since TNG or anything else that he's been involved with. You know, he just has, I said earlier, he has that very magnetic type of personality that just draws you in and you want to watch and you care about what his character is doing, no matter how meaningful his character actually is and, and whatever he's appearing in. When he's on screen, you pay attention. And I felt that in the, and I watched this episode twice. I was drawn into every single scene with Picard, and he's in for the most part, every scene in this entire show. But I'm very curious as to where they go with it because they set it up as Picard spent the last you know, 15, 20 years, however long it's been since he resigned from Starfleet, essentially being a bitter old man that's writing books that no one's going to read and he's just laying around waiting to die. Well, now he has something to fight for. You know, Dodge, unfortunately, was killed, but there is still her twin sister who you assume will have the same powers because in the second fight with the assassins for one we discover that the assassins were Romulan and second of all you know, she pretty easily beats them it just took almost like a freak accident for her to get killed but I'm assuming that um, that Dr. Asher is going to have these same abilities once they're in a way, activated when they have this, you know, wake-up call or whatever. So I, I would, I would very much recommend Star Trek Picard. You know, the first, uh, the next episode comes out Thursday morning, and for those listening on the download, you know, go back and check out episode one. For those listening live, if you're curious about Star Trek, definitely go check it out because it's just a very well done premiere episode this is how you kick off a show and I, I don't know how many episodes are going to be in this but this was a heck of a way to kick it off and I can't wait to watch more I will be doing a review of the entire series once it's done 
you know, that that's when I'll bring multiple people on and we'll do kind of a, a series review and retrospective and get everyone else's thoughts. But I just wanted to come on here for a bit and actually kind of dissect the episode and little things that I noticed. There were really cool Easter eggs, like I said, with the the Starfleet archive and, you know, um, the, the beginning with showing Picard and Data is a nice callback to, to TNG. And there were references to um, Bruce Maddox, who actually built um, Dodge and uh, Dr. Asher, because that's a callback to one of the Next Generation episodes when he wanted to dissect Data. And it led to a trial of deciding whether or not Data, who is an android, is a sentient being that can make his own decisions. So they they did a nice job of not retconning anything. You know, I, I love the reference to the Romulan supernova. I love the reference to Bruce Maddox. I loved all the callbacks to, to previous generations or iterations of Star Trek because it, it shows that it, it all mattered. And, but it's also served as a relaunching platform of you know, previously known characters. So I, I'm excited to see where it goes. You know, I know I'll definitely be waking up early Thursday morning to watch episode two, and I'll be doing it every week because they've they've hooked me. I've got CBS All Access, and I'm at least going to have it until Picard is done. They've already announced season two. And a really cool thing that happened was um, Patrick Stewart went on The View, and he invited Whoopi Goldberg to uh, reappear as Guinan in season two. And of course she said yes, but I just thought the way it was done was was, was really cool. So I, I think that's going to wrap up my thoughts on uh, Star Trek Picard. Like I said, I'll be coming back in a few weeks or whenever the show is done and we'll do a full recap of it. But... I did want to say in closing, I meant to mention this at the start of the show, but I'll say this as kind of the transition into, you know, the closing out for the live show and for those who are listening on the download, you know, stick around for the interview segment. But something that happened, and this has garnered huge attention, of course, but, you know, NBA legend Kobe Bryant passed away um, in a really tragic helicopter crash on Sunday. And it's one of those things that I think you'll remember what happened or you'll remember where you were when you found out what happened to Kobe. It's like a lot of people can say, you know, where were you when 9-11 happened? I remember where I was when that happened. I, after I had gotten a massage, I looked at my phone and I just saw a ton of notifications. Kobe Bryant dead, Kobe Bryant dead, Kobe Bryant dead. I had text messages, Kobe Bryant's dead, Kobe Bryant's dead. My initial thought was, okay, well, what what happened? What happened to Kobe Bryant? And unfortunately, what happened was Kobe Bryant, along with his daughter and several other people, were killed in a helicopter crash. And there's just been so much outpouring on social media and on you know ESPN, all types of sports and news outlets, because he he was much more than just a basketball player. He was a inspiration and he was a once in a generation type of athlete and I just think his 
his drive is very inspiring and it was very inspiring to people because he never settled for being anything less than the best and he'll he'll go down as one of the greatest NBA players of all time but I I, I bring this up because it really made me think of something because I, I've I've kind of been going through a little bit of a a life change as far as my outlook on things and trying not to be as worried about things that may or may not be in my control. But the biggest thing that I took away from that is wherever you are, it doesn't matter how big or small the issues you might have or whatever the case may be. Always take the time to tell those that you care about how much you care because you never know when you won't get the chance to do it again. And I know that's kind of a, a somber note to end this portion of the podcast on, but like I said, I wanted to mention it at the beginning, but you know, I, I did not, but um, thank you guys so much for taking the time to uh, sit through this Star Trek Picard review. I'll be doing, um, I, like I said earlier, I'm hoping to do an Oscars preview show next week. I'll, I'll let everyone know what the status of that is. It'll either be live or pre-recorded. I'll have to check my hopeful guest availability on that. And then there will be an interview segment attached as well. So uh, for those listening on, or for those watching live, thank you guys so much for joining me. Hopefully we get to do this on a more regular basis. For those listening on the download, stay tuned for the interview. And for those watching live, we'll see you guys next time. Happy to be joined with filmmaker Nathan Foff. Nathan, how are you today? Hey, doing well. Great to be with you. Awesome. No, thank you so much for taking the time to to do this interview. And I'm really excited to talk about your documentary, Film School Africa, here in just a second. But I was looking at your website earlier today, uh, prepping for this interview, and it seems like you have a very interesting backstory in the sense that you grew up in an area called Papua New Guinea. So what drove you to that area, and how was it growing up there? Yeah, uh, well, my parents uh, live and work there, so I grew up in Papua New Guinea until I finished high school and then just came back to the States for university where I studied film. I was always interested in film in high school growing up and um, saw the impact that, you know, movies and entertainment had even in Papua New Guinea. And so um, always would just um, make videos with my friends growing up. And uh, when I decided to go to university, thought I'd study something that I'm interested in. So I did that and then came out to L.A. about four years ago to kind of uh, work my way into the film industry out here. But I'm very grateful for my upbringing overseas, and I feel like it's enabled me to uh, just grow up with a great perspective of the world and different cultures. And, um, yeah, it was a very rich childhood that I'm very blessed to have been able to have. It's interesting because a lot of people that I talk with who work in the film industry, everyone has a very unique path. No one just said, oh, you know, I'm going to do film, you know, grew up in Los Angeles and just grew up around Hollywood. Like everybody, it seems like had their own unique path and journey. Um, so what was it specifically that made you want to be a filmmaker? Was it a certain movie? What exactly was it that inspired you to do that? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I feel like, um, like a lot of people, the Lord of the Rings trilogy was kind of a, a big spark for me in watching all the behind the scenes in their featurettes. Um, I was really intrigued by kind of the process of filmmaking from those. Um, but I really just liked the ability to kind of like share experiences when I would make videos with my friends. I saw how you could just like show them to the family and get everybody involved and um, kind of let people into experiences from your life that maybe you experienced, but um, they were able to grasp in a deeper way or better way. Um, and so I really like kind of the inclusivity. Um, and I like the kind of just the quality time of filmmaking with my friends, you know, it was something for us to do in Papua New Guinea. We could just pick up a video camera and go make a fun music video or something like that. So that's probably what started it for me. Well, it's good to have a support system like that when, you know, growing up and knowing that's what you want to do to have people that support you and, you know, go along with it. Cause I'm sure, you know, you, you learn some things even making those fun videos with your friends. Cause I know that's similar to what, what I did, you know, whenever I graduated college, I just made some funny skits and, you know, filmed like trips that we would go on and cut videos of them. And, you know, to have that type of upbringing and that type of support system, I imagine had to be pretty great. Yeah. Yeah. Very blessed. Very grateful for that kind of uh, background. And my family was always really supportive. So, yeah. So when you moved back to the States to attend college, you went to Taylor University, and you, mm-hmm. I watched this behind-the-scenes video that you made of yourself on your website, and it said that you made a documentary called The Advocate that actually won a regional Emmy in 2014. Was that your first big project that you did? And if so, you know, what was the inspiration behind it? That was kind of the first um, big documentary project that I had worked on, and it was actually for a documentary filmmaking class there at Taylor University. And um, I filmed it on a homeless friend of mine who um, was homeless in the city of of Indianapolis, essentially by choice. um, But he felt like it was his duty to serve the homeless community there by being homeless himself. And so when we were in the class and picking subject matter, I thought he was a fascinating character and got a team involved. And so, um, yeah, I was able to do that. And that was a, a semester class and that kind of was what started my love of documentary filmmaking because I loved kind of the real life aspect of it and um, people doing something inspiring that's again real life Um, so yeah that was a big big step in my journey for documentary film specifically and it's also a project I'm really proud of it won a student Emmy award back in 2014 so it's interesting you say that because it, it takes me back. You mentioning your love of documentary filmmaking. It takes me back to when I was a kid. I used to love watching National Geographic with my grandpa. We would watch it, you know, at night during the week. And finding out the real life aspect of things is sometimes even more fascinating than the fiction, you know, films that you know, are, are highly successful. Um, something I did want to point out, and it kind of segues into Film School Africa, because I watched the trailer for it. Back during the 90s and even the early 2000s, I remember watching documentaries, and it almost seemed like a point-and-shoot type of thing. But it seems like you really added a cinematic feel to Film School Africa, and I, I think that's it, it shows the evolution of that genre from being, oh, we're just going to tell a real-life story into really putting some good quality production behind it. Oh, yeah. I definitely feel like we're entering into a a golden phase of documentary, and I love how even Netflix will have 
like documentaries in if you choose like an action category on Netflix, it'll include documentaries in with you know, fictional narrative films or something like that. And so I love how just like the access with all the new media and phones and everything, like anybody can have a bunch of footage now, collect footage and, and do all that kind of stuff. So funnily enough, I, I actually didn't watch too many documentaries growing up, but I think it was the sub- simplicity that drew me to it because I didn't need a big crew or a lot of lights or setup or anything. It was just kind of like, you know, grab a camera and go sometimes. So I like the the simplicity aspect of it, but I think, I think a good documentary well told is super powerful and can change the world. I totally agree with that. It's it's kind of a combination I feel like of cinematic quality but also with the the guerrilla style of filmmaking where you just like you said you literally take a camera out and you do it. Yeah. So what was the inspiration behind the story of Film School Africa and how did you you go through the process of getting it made. Yeah, so uh, Katie Taylor, the main subject of the film, who started the film school there in the Cape Town area of South Africa, she actually came to Taylor University and gave a presentation at, I think it was right after that documentary filmmaking class, so she was able to watch The Advocate, the my short documentary that I did on my homeless friend. And um, she came and she gave a presentation to the class and talked about how she was teaching film to youth in underprivileged areas. And um, two things really struck me. One was that the students were using their films as art therapy um, because a lot of times they would pick up a camera having never touched one before, but they were telling real life stories from their life because that's what they knew. And a lot of them were really raw and it was just a powerful way for them to kind of process through different events from their sometimes pretty traumatic lives and pasts that they had gone through. And so um, the art therapy side I found was really fascinating. But then also Katie herself was a working as a casting director's assistant in L.A. in the film industry there. And she had worked her way up to work on some pretty big films like Spider-Man 3. And um, and she actually gave up her quickly growing career to move to South Africa. And so here I was in film school and I knew that a lot of my friends and I were, you know, hoping to go into the industry or make it big or have a quickly growing career or whatever. And then here Katie was, and she was kind of giving all that up to go to South Africa and teach full time in kind of an underprivileged area there. And so um, a few years later, I was actually doing some film work in Africa. And so I just reached out to Katie and said like, Hey, you know, I'm going to be in Africa. I'd love to pop down to South Africa. And while I'm there, I'd love to maybe film a documentary about you and the students while I'm there. Uh, Would that be a possibility? And, um, and so she gratefully let me, and, uh, it was only the second time I had actually met her face to face. We had corresponded before, but, um, I hadn't met her. Uh, I'd only met her once before showing up to, to work with students and do this film. So very grateful that she trusted me and gave me this opportunity. It's really inspiring to think that, you know, she gave up what's essentially a dream career to, pursue this calling so it it had to be just a really strong feeling I think that she had to say you know I can move to a different continent and I can help these people you know pursue their dream like that that's inspiring stuff yeah and I I definitely thought so too and I love I love finding those people those kind of like local heroes that are doing something really powerful or inspiring and then um my, my goal is I'd love to find those and kind of just shed a light on them to kind of show the rest of the world, what they're doing, um, and kind of let them reach a bigger audience for others to get inspired, maybe to get involved or to do something similar as well. So, yeah. 
Well, I think it would be a great way to give people an outlet to tell their story because there's a there were two quotes that stood out to me in the trailer. The first one was of this young man who said, "I'm a filmmaker, I just don't have the skills or the tools to do it." Like he he knew what his calling was, but he just said, "You know, I, I know what I want to do, I just don't know how to do it." And that just it jumped off the screen at me almost instantly. And then the other was someone else said, we're not allowed to talk about ourselves. But doing the film gives them the ability to do that. And that, that's, that shows you how powerful film can be. And, and you know, to me, it's, it's the... And there's so many great art forms in the world from you know, great paintings, sculptures. But to me, film is, and for those reasons, being is the greatest one of all. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree, obviously. But um, yeah, and I talk about it in the film. That's what drew Katie there, too, is she heard this um, man say, you know, I'm a filmmaker, but don't have the skills or tools. And that really stuck with Katie. And so she was like, well, maybe I could help you know, at least. Um, but yeah. So getting all these stories, you know, because when you think of documentaries, you have to interview people and you get their story, their, you know, take on things. Were there any stories that had an emotional impact on you? Yeah, I think um, I didn't. So I kind of knew a little bit about the school going in, but what I didn't know was the students because I obviously hadn't been there before. So I met the students when I got there and I think um, watching them kind of come together and not only learn and grow in filmmaking, but kind of learn and grow helping each other and like watching them really become a team and bond. I really loved um, and so that was kind of the, the emotional aspect that I wasn't anticipating that was a big part of the film, actually. Um, so I would say that was kind of the part that I, I enjoyed watching the most because I, I would often go on set with them to, to film kind of the behind the scenes that became the documentary and just watching them interact with each other. And then I kind of just became the crazy uncle who was always there, always in the background <laughs> kind of filming. So it was a fun dynamic. I'm sure they got used to you at a certain point it's just like it was almost like you know oh yeah the camera's there no no huge deal yeah it just became it took an everyday a while thing. but they eventually did get to that point but it wasn't at first they were kind of like why is he filming as you know like i bet they were wondering if i was gonna report it back to katie and it would affect their grade or something like that but they did warm up to me and and we all became close friends so it was a fun process that's great I've got to ask because it sounds like this project was just a huge undertaking because you you handled a lot of the filming, the editing. How long did it take you to shoot all the footage? And if you don't know the exact number, you know that that's perfectly fine. But do you have an estimated number of how many hours of footage that you shot? You know, I, I once upon a time did, and I calculated it out, but I forget that number at the moment. But it was definitely a couple of terabytes worth of footage. Um, I filmed for about three months, which was one of the school's semesters. And so I did filming for three months. And then towards the end of it, Katie actually was like, hey, I have all these old archival like DV tapes from the early days from you know, back in 2008 when they did the very first class. And so I was like, what? These are gold. And so I spent the last week that I was there in South Africa just digitizing old DV tapes so I could get all that archival footage as well, which ended up being a huge blessing and was you know a good portion of the first chunk of the film and um and so yeah I filmed for about three months and then I came back to the states and I edited it for about a year I um I actually just worked on my laptop <laughs> sitting on my couch in my apartment 
and just edited it for about a year after that, a little over. Um, so, yeah. And it's crazy because, you know, back in the day, I, I guess you would say, you had to go to a studio or an office, go into an edit bay and edit there. But now the 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 advancements of filmmaking we're at the point where you can put together a full film or a full documentary on a laptop. And it's, it's insane. It's absolutely insane. Um, It's funny. You mentioned DV tapes. You know, I don't think I've heard that term in in several years, you know, my, my first projects I ever filmed were on mini DV tapes. And I still think I have a giant stack of them at at my parents' house. So one day I should digitize all those. Um, how many hours do you think you spent editing this? Cause you, you said it took you a year to edit. That, yeah. That's gotta be an insane amount of was, hours. I believe it was over 800 hours of editing. Wow. Um, I kind of, I think I lost track after 800 hours cause it, it was just me and I enjoyed doing it. So I enjoyed combing through every single piece of footage and, um, and really kind of tweaking everything. So, um, yeah, I think it was over 800 hours worth of editing. What soft? Uh, just out of curiosity, what software did you use to edit? Yeah, I used uh, Premiere Pro. Oh, and perfect. Um, very grateful. Definitely, uh, this generation person. Uh, very grateful for all the new technology to be able to do it on my laptop in Premiere um, by myself. You know, before you would have needed a studio and crazy equipment. So, I, and funnily enough, you mentioned DV tapes. I actually never filmed on dv tapes myself i I just came into filmmaking right as they were coming out with hard drive camcorders Mm -hmm. and so my first little camcorder was hard drive based and digital um digital files so i never actually had the the pleasure or the hassle depending on how you look at it of working with tapes uh real-time capturing was uh was a fun time back in the day i I had my (laughs) my old firewire port that i would plug into my camera the other end would go into my computer and if you had a three-hour tape, it would take you three hours to import it or digitize it, which was, which which was fun. Yeah, you know, it was. It makes you appreciate the the technology now, where you can just pop an SD card in the computer and just, you know, take X amount of time to to import onto your computer. But um, oh yeah, very grateful for current technology. Absolutely. So. As guess as we start to wrap up here, I do want to ask, what's next for you as far as as your film career? Do you have any other uh, projects in the works? Um, I got a couple ideas in the works, nothing too solidified. I think um, I've thought about doing one on my parents and their work in Papua New Guinea, um, but uh, we'll see. I'd love to again keep just telling stories of local heroes and kind of shedding a, a light on what they're doing to kind of. Uh, have them reach bigger audiences and then they can use my films as marketing purposes or promotional materials or things like that. So I love the, I love the finding character based, uh, personal driven documentaries. Yeah. They, those definitely, they hit home on a, a different level than traditional film does for sure. Um, last question I want to ask you before, uh, before I let you go, do you have any, advice you could give to an aspiring filmmaker any advice i would give you know um someone gave this advice to me and i i very literally took it to heart in making this film but he kind of mentioned that 
if you want to do something, especially in the film industry, you should just kind of keep doing that thing and get known for doing that thing or being in that position. Because if you try to start somewhere else and slowly work your way up the ladder, it's so easy easy to get stuck and get caught doing something that you don't want to be doing. And most people don't actually move up to where they want to be anyway. But so like in filmmaking, if you want to be a director, he just encouraged me, like, keep directing, like, so that when people know you, they know you as a director and they'll be willing to give you a shot someday. Whereas if you try out to be like assistant somewhere, then they'll only know you as a really good assistant and not as a really good director. Um, and so I knew that I wanted to make documentaries and I was like, I should, you know, have a feature film under my belt. So I just went out and shot a feature film because I wanted to be known as a documentary filmmaker and not just an assistant somewhere or editor somewhere. So um, that's kind of the advice I would give other people is just whatever you want to do, keep always doing something in that track so that people know and remember you as that thing. That's great advice. And do you have any website or social media you'd like to plug so the listeners can follow you? Yeah, well, for the film, it's um, filmschoolafrica.org. You can go to that website, and that tells you a lot about the school, and there's also a, a page for the documentary there. And then we have Facebook and Instagram accounts at Film School Africa and FSA Doc for Film School Africa documentary on Facebook and Instagram. Fantastic. Well, Nathan, thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview. It was great. Yeah, thank you. It was a pleasure being with you. Thanks again to Nathan Foff for coming on the show to talk about Film School Africa. And thank you to everyone who joined me on Facebook Live earlier this week as I reviewed the inaugural episode of Star Trek Picard. For next week's show, I'm going to be previewing the 2020 Oscars. This is going to be the first time I've actually sat down and watched the Oscars in quite a while. Um, I'm very interested to see what happens. I've seen a lot of the films that are nominated for Best Picture Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, so on and so forth. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. And I'm going to try to do an instant reaction show right after the Oscars ends. But if not, then I'll be doing a wrap-up show the following week pre-recorded. But we'll have to see what happens. But next week's show also is the first show in February. And something cool I'm going to be doing to promote Pensacon, which takes place February 28th through March 1st here in Pensacola, Florida at the Pensacola Bay Center, as well as many other venues throughout the downtown area. The interview segment for every show in February will be dedicated to Pensacon in some form of fashion. I'm going to kick things off with artist Christopher Burdett. So going to be a really fun show next week. Hopefully you guys tune in. Until then, you can check out past episodes of this show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify, and now officially on YouTube. Just search for Derek Diamond on YouTube and you can find the episodes there. For YouTube, the shows are going to be divided into segments. So, for example, you'll have the Picard review as its own video and then the Nathan Foff interview as its own video as well. So uh, just search for Derek Diamond on YouTube and don't forget to subscribe. It should be a fun adventure. I feel like it's long overdue that my show is on YouTube. But you can also follow me on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Podcast. And of course, thank you to my friends, the Unicorn Wranglers, for providing the theme music for the podcast. You can check out all their music on Apple Music, Google Play, and Spotify. And I think that's going to do it for this week's show. So enjoy the rest of your week. Have a safe and fun weekend. Thank you for tuning in to another awesome episode of the Derek Diamond Experience. I am your host, Derek Diamond, and we'll see you guys back here next Thursday.